So we're, uh, today we're continuing our series in 1 John. A couple of weeks ago, you might recall that we, we talked about uh, the family, meeting the family, sort of characters in the church. There's like children who have childlike faith. Uh, there was the young adults who are the spiritual warriors defeating the enemy through prayer um, and love. And then there was the, uh, the parents who kind of uh, are in charge of making sure that we stick to the truth and we don't lose that. Today, John's going to kind of warn us, though, because there are some pitfalls that those of us in the family of God can stumble into, and they can be extremely damaging to the church, to our faith, um, and they can, they can totally set us back. There, there's a series of bad habits that we can get into that can wreck what God's trying to do through this family of faith. And so today, let's, uh, let's listen to what John has to say, and let's find out uh, hopefully this doesn't describe, uh, or you can follow on the screen here, or you can pull out your phone Bible. But it goes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If someone loves the world, love for the Father is not in that person. Because everything, everything in the world, the things the body craves, the things our eyes long to see, and our overconfidence in what we have, that, all that stuff has its origin not in the Father, but in the world. But listen, the world is fading away, and all of its cra- cravings are going with it. But the one who practices God's will is living forever. Now, there's a lot going on here, um, and I'll pick it apart as we, as we go through, especially if you're uh, a church person and you're familiar, because I, I don't want us to get lost um, in it. But, but let's start out with this. What's the first thing that, that John's concerned about? He's just told us about these different, you know, members of the family. You know, the family of God, we're, 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 we're defending the faith, we're, we're fighting against the evil one, we're, we're practicing childlike trust. But there's a danger for us, and the danger is that we might fall in love with the world. We might fall in love with the things around us. If you uh, remember from the, the New King James translation, it'll say, um, it says, the lust of the flesh, where I have the things the body craves. The lust of the flesh. It says, the lust of the eyes, where I have the things our eyes long to see. And it says, the pride of life, where I have overconfidence in what we have. And, and the reason I've, I've, I've updated this language is because when you hear the word lust in English, what do you think about Really, nobody? Sex! Come on! Uh, and, and not that sex isn't implied here. Uh, sex is a part of the things the body craves. But, but really, epithemia, uh, that's the, the word behind um, crave or lust in the Greek. It really just kind of means like, like desire or work of stuff to do with sex. It just doesn't. Um, it can mean that, but it doesn't have to. And so when you hear the lust of the flesh, in English, it sounds a little bit, I mean, it's poetic, but it sounds like we're talking about something very specific. Um, but that's not really what's going on. Rather, it's, it's the things that our body desires, the things that our bodies crave. And uh, if you are familiar with history, you may remember um, Le Roi, Le Roi Soleil. Anybody speak French here? Jim's like, oh yeah, Sun King, I know. It's the Sun King, right? Or, or Louis le Grand. Louis the Great. Okay, Louis the Fourteenth. Louis the Fourteenth generally considered to be one of the most amazing, majestic, wonderful, glorious rulers of France. At the height of France's glory, Louis was the one who was doing this. And Louis, Louis, uh, was a dude who did not say no to his body. Okay? 
Louis uh, had two wives, seven mistresses. He had 18 kids uh, over the course of his life. He, um, he never passed up a chance to go to the ballet. He's he a patron of arts. Pretty much anything that could tickle his ears or his eyes or any other part of his body, he was into it. And he never said no. He's like, look, I live hard uh, because I king hard. I've won all these battles and I've made all this stuff, so I'm going to enjoy my life. Now, he kind of got away with it. He, he reigned for like 77 years. Um, one of the, I think it might be the longest reigning European monarch uh, in history, but, or close to it. He, he reigned for 77 years, and he, and he lived this hard the entire time. Now, most of us can't get away with that. Most of us, once, once you've had that 12th or 13th child um, with, you know, the, the however many, at that point, fellas, you're probably tapped out monetary-wise, but you're not a king. You can get away with it. Most of us, if we spend all of our time, money, you know, getting the next record that we can listen to, sorry, the next streaming playlist that we can listen to, um, you know, the, 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 the next turkey that we're going to consume, um, you know, if, if, even if, even if you can pull it off like Louis did, you know, you win the lottery or whatever, and you can do it, and you can make it happen. John seems to think that there, there's something very, very dangerous about that. And, and I think probably what John's, John's getting at is like if you're standing around and you're, and you're simply listening to what your body wants and you're like, yes, another sip, another toke, another whatever, another girl, another thing, another this, another that. If you live your life that way, you're going to miss out on what God's up to. You're not going to be paying attention to what God has, because you're going to be paying attention to what your belly has. And don't think that I'm just yelling at you when I say this, because if anyone here <laughs> can roll like Louis the Fourteenth, it's this guy. I just need to become independently wealthy. Then things will be great. And so uh, I think what John's getting at is he's like, he's like, there is a way that you can fall in love with the world. And, and I'm, calling it, I'm calling Louis XIV, I'm calling him the sensualist. Right? The, person who is, and the person who is all about having the senses bring us various forms of pleasure. And so that's the first thing in your note sheets. The sensualist is controlled, controlled by bodily desires. And if your bodily desires are running you, they're controlling you, then guess what's not controlling you? The stuff that God wants for you. All right, let's go back uh, to the text. So the, 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 the lust of the flesh, um, which, which I've translated, you know, the things the body creates. Uh, the lust of the eyes. Uh, again, not really, um, not really a sexual connotation, although that can be part of this, right? Um, the, the things that the eyes long to see, especially for uh, you men, um, a lot of us uh, maybe are desiring to see, uh, you know, members of the opposite sex without their clothes on doing terrible things, okay? Uh, that is definitely a part of what the eyes long to see, but it's not the only thing the eyes long to see. And so we do have to um, be careful about that, but we don't want to make this so narrow that we miss John's point. See, John knows that there's, there's the bodily desires, but there's a different type of desire that happens uh, with, with really, he, he describes it as our eyes, but it's, it's a sense, it's a, it's a longing for, um, for, well, 
If anyone, you know, can show us what it is, it's uh, Nick Cage. Here he is at the top of his game. That's uh, from Con Air, where he really, really broke through as a tremendous part of our culture. You might think quite like Con Air, where you know it's ridiculous, and this guy should not be an action star, but here he is! What Nick Cage is known for uh, nowadays is uh, for being in every single movie that anyone offers him, right? The man, ha- the man is he's incapable of saying no. They're like, in this movie, you're going to play like a janitor who like, goes to space. He's like, I'm in! They're like, in this movie, you're going to be a star. I'm in! There's a reason for that. Over the course of six years, Nick Cage spent $150 million. He'd, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s, he, really, he, was, he, was, he was the thing, and he just acquired all of this cash. And he, and he went crazy, and he blew $150 million. Like, here's some stuff that he bought. Uh, on the top left there, you're seeing uh, shrunken pygmy heads. Yeah, for some reason, Nick Cage was walking around, and he was like, I think what I need right now, shrunken pygmy heads. Get my lawyer on the phone. Hiring the shrunken pig. On the top right there, he was in trouble because DiCaprio wanted it too. It's a dinosaur skull. And DiCaprio was willing to go to $225 million. Nick said, I want it. $276,000 done. And he got it. $276,000. On the bottom right is this octopus. He was walking through his house one day and he looked at his empty aquarium and he was like, what that needs is an octopus. And so he went ahead and he spent $100,000 buying an octopus. And then he needed a place to put the octopus, so he bought an island in the Bahamas for three mil, which is a steal. I, mean, I can't believe you can get an island for $3 million. Some of his homes cost more than $3 million. He got the whole darn thing. Along with this, there was also um, many other things. But really what was going on for Nicolas Cage is that he came to a point in his life where um, he you know, had everything. So he, he started looking around, and he was like, what's the next thing I can get? What's the next thing that's going to excite me? When I was a kid, uh, we didn't have the internet, or it was like a baby internet, and so... During the 90s, I waited every month for the arrival of PC Gamer magazine. It was the highlight of my month. And I never knew when it would come. It would, just, it would randomly show up. But I had a subscription. And man, every day I'd go to the mailbox, depression, sadness. But when games that would wreck my computer. And I would get to flip through the glossy pages and see all of the new wonderful games that were coming out. The advances they were making in realistic graphics. Uh, now, you know, when I was a kid, they, they were starting to make blood pixels so that when you shoot someone, they explode and blood splatters on the screen. I was like, yeah, that's awesome. And every single time, all I wanted was the next one. The next. Some of you, uh, you, you love uh, fashion. You know, you're, you're into the, 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 the next purse, the next, you know, the next outfit, the next season that's coming out, that has all of these new things. It's the, the, the things that our eyes long to see, really what it comes down to is it's about novelty. 
It's about finding something new that, like, well, oh, this is, and what's so funny, so, for example, sometimes you'll, you know, you'll be on a vacation, right? You've looked forward to this vacation, going to a brand new spot, and you finally get there, and you're there, and literally in the middle of the vacation, you're starting to think about the next one, right? The next place that might be better in these ways. John understands that, that even uh, people of faith, even the, 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 those with childlike faith and those who are fighting uh, the devil on the front lines and those who are guarding the truth of the church, even these people can be caught up in what's new, what's next. And the problem, of course, is that if you're always looking for the next version of Pokemon Go, you might be missing the people that God has called you to right in front of your face. And if you get so caught up in looking over the next horizon, you might miss the hurt that God's called you to attend. You might miss the hopelessness that God has called you to bring hope to. You might miss these things. They're right there because because your, your eye is caught, always caught. By something in the future. And so you're not ready to live now. I call uh, Nick Cage the aesthete. Um, it's from the word aesthetics. And it's, it's someone who, who's always caught by the newest thing, the newest fashion, the newest uh, whatever, couture, whatever. The aesthete's controlled by the next big thing. And so the aesthete misses what's right in front of him or her. John goes on. He, he, he's not done. He says the uh, overconfidence in what we have, uh, you'll see the pride of life. Um, it's, an odd, uh, it's an odd phrase in Greek, uh, the, where, where I have uh, the things we have. Um, that, that word in Greek is bios, which we get the word biology, life, from. Um, but Greek uh, uses the word uh, bios in two ways, one of which is to talk about um, our, how we make our livelihood, how we uh, survive, how we, how we thrive uh, with our material possessions, that kind of thing. And so uh, in Mark 12, um, for example, the, the widow who gives uh, the, the two mites, if you remember this story, she gives everything she has, right? And, uh, and what the, the Greek says is she gave um, her whole life, right, her whole bios, everything she has, and I think that's what, what John's talking about here. It's all the stuff we've got, right? And, and when we boast in it, when we're prideful about it, what we're prideful about is the belief that this is protecting us. This is making us, you know, this is, we, we've got it figured out. We're, you know, by ourselves. We can, we pulled ourselves up from the bootstraps. We are secure because of all this stuff. Like my man, 50 Cent, Curtis Jackson. That's uh, it's Curtis Jackson at his 52-room um, compound in Connecticut. Uh, you may not know, but Curtis Jackson, uh, 50 Cent, he uh, grew up on the south side of Brooklyn. And for 50 Cent, um, life growing up was uh, extremely precarious. Uh, he didn't have much in the way of a family. He uh, made his living as a young teenager by selling drugs on street corners. He uh, eventually decided he wanted to get in the rap game, so he, uh, he began uh, becoming a rapper. And at one point, he had made some enemies, 
And um, in Southside Brooklyn, enemies are actually very, very dangerous um, to your, your physical health. And uh, he was caught up in a shooting where uh, someone at point-blank range shot him with a 9mm nine times. So he and almost caught um, his brain stem. He also had uh, a shot in the chest. He was sitting there uh, in the doctor in the, in the ER, and the doctor was looking at him and said, it's a miracle that you're alive. Any one of these shots, just a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, you'd be dead. And uh, 50 Cent, he actually has an autobiography. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he talks about what he, what he was thinking. And he was like, the fact that I'm alive right now, I have got to figure out how to protect myself. Because this life is fragile, and at any moment I could get snuffed out. So he uh, released one of the uh, largest rap albums of the 2000s, and then um, he, with, with all the money, when he first got rich, he took his money and he spent $4 million and he bought this, this house or this mansion or whatever from Mike Tyson. And the reason he did it is he said, behind, he paid uh, his so-called friends to you know, walk security around the perimeter, and basically for the next 10 years of his life, he just hunkered down and just survived. And a lot of that is probably because he was suffering from uh, paranoia and PTSD from a time in his life when he was absolutely insecure. And so he realized, he thought, if I just build up enough wealth, I can finally be okay. He ended up, uh, I think a couple years ago, he, he ended up selling, uh, the, the, he called it a compound. He didn't call it a, his mansion or his house, it was his compound. He sold it at a loss of a million dollars because he realized that even the biggest house with the most rooms and the most armed security, and the mo- even that will never be enough. And it doesn't just have to be uh, stuff that we put our confidence in. A lot of us, uh, especially those of us who are successful, like those might look at like, oh, I've really got great kids, and, and so I, I have, you know, these kids show everybody that I'm good, right? Or you might um, have a very successful business or a very successful career, and you look at that and you say, this shows that I've got worth, and no one can take it away from me because I worked my butt off to make this happen. And so I know that I'm secure because I did this. And so it doesn't have to just be physical security. It can be the security of status or honor amongst people around you. And you can heap these things up. You can heap up. It would be like in the military and heaping up more and more ribbons, more and more stripes, uh, you know, going up, rising up to the ranks. And at a certain point, you look around and you're like, I'm the best. Nobody can touch me because I did all these things. And if you live this way, if we live this way, we set about making things about us. The name drops, you know, the, the security, the this, the that. And everything ends up being about me. And so the people around me start recognizing that I'm about me. And they miss being about God. 
And I want you to remember, this is not, this is not a warning for people. As we can get so invested in protecting what we have and showing that we're safe and secure or protecting our name, our achievements, our honor, our status so that no one can take us down or look down on us. We can spend so much of our time living and acting that way that we, that no one notices God anymore. In fact, at a certain point, we just don't need God. Because we've got it figured out. So I call Curtis Jackson, 50 Cent, I call him the prepper. Uh, and this is a, sort of a play on those who, uh, you know, are hoarding bullets for when the black helicopters come. And I was talking to Kira the other day, and uh, it was funny because, like, three years ago, if someone told me the black helicopters were going to come and, you know, take you all away, and me too, and send us to the gulags, I'd been like, ha, ha, ha. Now I'm like, ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. Really need to invest in that nine milla. Uh, But preppers are so concerned about material security status Now, John, John he, he's saying these are dangerous, right? And we can see that these things can sort of impede what God is about, what God's up to. But hey, who cares, right? Let's just say we don't care that much about what God's, you know, up to or doing. I mean, shouldn't we just live this way because it's better for me now? John doesn't think so. Listen, look at, look at what he says at the end here. So he says, if you love the world, the love for the Father, it's not in you. Okay? You've stopped loving God. You're a part of God's family. God's your dad. He's your father. But you've stopped loving him. You've come fallen in love with something else. Okay? And then he says, now listen, the problem with that is that this world is going bye-bye. We are passing into a new world. And all of the cravings, the desires, all the stuff that we have now here... And, and when that age comes, the things that excite and titillate and, and, and that we get excited about now, those things disappear. They're not going to fit in this new age. And then so he says, he says, listen, the person who's practicing God's will is living forever. Uh, if you are looking in your New King James, it's going to say something like, um, the one who does God's will um, is, uh, remains uh, in eternity or, or abides in eternity, something like that. Again, an, sort of an odd uh, Greek phrase, but uh, really it, it, the first thing is doing um, and I've translated practices uh, because the idea here is that somebody, it's, a, it's somebody who's, who's, who's known for over and over doing God's will, get, who's gotten the practice, the habit, the good habit of doing what God wants, who's interested in what God's interested in, not what, what I'm interested in. Right? And what John says is, he says, if you become that person, if you start living like that, where you're, you're, your habit is to do what God wants and not heap up you know, what you want, well, you will be living forever. And a, a really wooden uh, translation of this would be, you will, be, uh, you will remain, or you'll have to Jewish people, the age to come. You'll be living or abiding or, or sitting in the age to come. It is coming, and elsewhere John's like, look, the, we're at the last hour, friends. It's happening. The, the time is, is now. And if you start doing the way, things the way God wants you to, you, that age, you're going to be living in the kingdom as though it's already here. This is uh, Barbara Adams. Um, she, she's an interesting person. She's been featured in a couple of documentaries about uh, Star Trek fanatics uh, called Trekkies. 
1996, she was selected for jury duty on a, uh, a case that involved, I think, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton called, like, Whitewater or something like that. I don't know what it was about, but they, apparently someone thought the Clintons had done something wrong and so they were being prosecuted. And she got selected for the jury. And so the first day that she, well, even when she's selected, uh, and every day that she came to, to jury duty, she was wearing her Star Trek uniform. She, uh, she, wore, she wore her Starfleet jury duty uh, looking like that. And reporters were like, What? So they interviewed her. They asked her, and she, she said, what do you mean? This is, these, this is, these are my clothes. And they're like, well, yeah, but no, I mean, most of the time people wait to like a Star Trek convention to put on their uniform. You seem to be wearing, she's like, yeah, I wear it to work. And, and, the, and the reporter's like, and they're okay with that? I mean, you look ridiculous, and people are laughing at you. And she was like, well, you know something? I don't like the way the world is. In fact, the way the world ought to be is the way it is in Star Trek, where people are inclusive, and they're tolerant, and they're generous, and they care for each other. And you know what? I believe, she said, that that's how things are going to turn out. One day, we will live those values, all of us. And so until that day comes... This is what I'm wearing. And so, yeah, people might laugh at me. But I hope while they're laughing, there's something in the back of their minds that triggers them to think. But wouldn't it be better if we all lived on the enterprise? Of course, that's ridiculous. (laughs) I, I don't like Thor or whatever. I think that's great. Um, it weirds me out. Uh, but hey, you know, it's America. You do you. Liberty, freedom. And if you, kids, Haley, if you ever do do like a really great cosplay, show me pictures, all right? I'm curious. I'm interested. I will support you in that. Um, but isn't it interesting that what John has just said is almost exactly the same thing that Barbara Adams Said only, only Barbara Adams is living in a fictional fantasy land where she thinks that somehow, like, you know, we're all going to end up like in Gene, Gene Roddenberry's, you know, utopia. That's nonsense. That's crazy talk. But, but isn't there something interesting where John's like, John's like, no, no, that's what Christian life is. Is it's recognizing the, the, the will of God, which is, which is fully, recon, fully uh, realized in the kingdom of God, which is coming. Right? That, that's, on, that's on the horizon. It's, it's, it's breaking over. It's starting to happen now. And you have the opportunity right now to put on your kingdom of God uniform and live in that future reality today. You can literally be living eternity, living forever. And the only thing you have to do is distracting you and taking away from God's will. Last thing on your, your note sheets. Living God's way means living in the freedom of the coming kingdom today. And as Doug was mentioning during uh, our time of, of singing and praise and worship, you know, freedom, we think we're free. We think our choices to, you know, get caught up in satisfying all of our bodily desires. We think that, you know, our choices to just chase after Every single shiny new thing 
that we see. We think that our choice to make ourselves secure, to, to shore up our status, our honor, um, our, our power, and our prestige, we think that all of those things are, are free choices. They're what we do because we can do what we want. John says no. Actually, those are just various different types of slavery. And the only way you'll ever be really free, now. Because that's what you were created for. That is your destiny. You might as well get a head start. And so I, I'd like um, every one of us to just to, to ponder, which, which are we? The sensualist, sensualist, the aesthete. Are you caught up in bodily desire? Are you caught up in the next shiny new thing? Are you a prepper? Are you trying to make yourself safe? And what would it look like to get free of those things? What would it look like to be doing God's will instead? Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, God of freedom and liberty, we confess, God, that we come uh, to you distracted by these cravings, these lusts, secure and and honored and, and glorified. We confess that these things, they tear our bodies and our eyes and our hearts away from what you have for us. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit will come and liberate us. To, that your Spirit will give us wisdom and insight to see where Jesus is and is moving and to go and chase after that instead. May we unite in our desire to glorify and worship and glory in you and not ourselves. May we be kingdom participants in kingdom uniforms, a shock and an an offense to the world as we live out our future lives now. And may you bind us together in your love that we might be the family you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.